Father in heaven, we saw a couple of weeks ago that your word is alive and that it is powerful to revive our souls, to make us wise, to change our hearts. To bring joy to us. And that's exactly what we ask that you do now. Some of us are in a state of discouragement. Father, we need you to bring the encouragement of your presence and your power in our lives. Some of us are in a state of confusion and we don't even know what to do and we want to pray that you would bring clarity in our decision making and clarity in our lifestyle this morning through your word. Some of us are in a state of failure. We feel like we fail at everything that you've called us to do and We feel dominated by our failures and we've dug a hole that we cannot get out of. And Father, we pray that your word will come in today and prove itself to be our success. Prove itself to be our thriving. So that we no longer have to strive in the midst of our failures, but just rejoice in your success. Father, we we need you to bring a sense of celebration and rejoicing at who you are and what you've done. And only your word can do that. And so we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will infuse our hearts and our minds and our wills with you. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The video that we watched had the preacher saying, I'm not ashamed of the Protestant Reformation. And asked the question, are you ashamed of the Protestant Reformation? And I just want to give the personal testimony that I personally am in no way, shape, form, or fashion ashamed of the Protestant Reformation. One of the main reasons is because I know what it's like to live in bondage to my own sin while being in a church that was birthed out of the Protestant Reformation but still didn't preach the gospel in a way that liberated me from myself. I can only imagine what it was like to be in a so-called church that did not preach that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Imagine the bondage one might feel when you think you have to make yourself look attractive to God before God will accept you. Martin Luther was 21 years old. Walking on his way to his university, and he got caught in a sudden and violent storm, and a lightning bolt smashed him to the ground. Terrified, he cried out, St. Anne, help me. I shall become a monk. Martin Luther survived. He upheld his vow and began a monastic life. In a sense, he loved it. Luther's deepest fear was of dying and having to stand before God, his judge. But becoming a monk gave him what he saw as a golden opportunity. He could make himself more attractive to God and hopefully earn God's love. And he went for it. Every few hours, he would leave his tiny monastery cell and make his way 
to a service in the chapel, starting with my teens in the middle of the night, then another at 6 in the morning, then another at 9 in the morning, another at 12 noon, and so on and so on and so on. And he often took no bread or water for three days at a time and was quite prepared deliberately to freeze himself in the winter cold in the hope that he might please God. Driven to confession, he would exhaust his confessors, taking up to six hours at a time to catalog his most recent sins. Now just imagine being the, the other person on, on, on the other side of that box. I mean, he's a monk in a monastery. I mean, what, what sins could all he be committing that he's confessing for six hours? Yet the more he did, the more trouble he became. Was it enough? Were his motives right? Luther found himself sinking into an ever deeper introspection. He began to sense that his moral dirtiness and lack of attractiveness to God went deeper than his behavior. He came to see himself as a man curved in on himself and fundamentally selfish. All his good conduct and religious behavior was only disguising the problem, not solving it. Worse, he was coming to see God as a loveless tyrant who demands perfection and gives nothing but punishment. And this is what he says. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Now listen, church. In that dark, dark place, he made his happy discovery. Studying the Bible in his cell, he was struggling to understand what the Apostle Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Luther asked the question, what on earth could this mean? What exactly is the righteousness of God? This was the turning point in Martin Luther's life 500 years ago. And so what I want to ask you to do is turn to Romans chapter 1, the very passage that changed Martin Luther's life and changed the direction of the church of Jesus Christ until this very day. Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome, people who have given their lives to Jesus Christ and are now no longer under the, the, the spiritual lordship of Caesar, of the emperor. They now are calling Christ their Lord because he's changed them. And Paul writes to them. And this letter is probably the most profound letter that we read in the Bible, and it is Paul's thesis on salvation. And what we're about to read in verses 16 and 17 is the big idea of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that the gospel is the life-changing power of God for people who exercise faith in Him. 
The gospel is the life-changing power of God for people who exercise their faith in Him. We need to unpack that. We need to see that unfold for us. And church, before we kind of walk through this thing chronologically, I think we want to just simply ask the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And I want to just offer it as a, a question to the congregation. Is there anyone who can give a definition of the gospel? Anyone know what the gospel is? Cody. That is right. It is. It is the gospel is the good news of salvation. And then we're going to insert two words through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is exactly right. It's the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, the infinitely righteous and incredibly gracious God of the universe has looked down upon hopelessly sinful and rebellious people and He sends His perfect and holy and righteous Son to bear His wrath on sin. And then He shows His power by raising His Son from the dead so that all who believe in Him will be saved. Now church, what we need to understand in the context of Martin Luther's experience and also in our own experience is that religion is man's search for God. Okay, but the gospel is God's pursuit of man. Religion is what a sinful man tries to do for a holy God, and the gospel is what a holy God has already done for sinful man. Now that is absolutely critical to understand the difference between Christianity and every other religion that exists under the sun. The gospel is powerful because it is the power of God. Now let's just step back and think about that. Okay, the power of God. This word power is used 119 times in the New Testament. The word power means the inherent power or the inherent ability residing in a thing by virtue of its very nature. Let's take Martin Luther and the lightning bolt that struck him on his way to university. That lightning bolt was inherently powerful because it possessed electricity inside of it, did it not? It had inherent power. Now God is inherently powerful. He is sovereignly powerful. Okay? The gospel, that is the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus, is the power of Almighty God. Now I think before we look at the gospel as the power of God, it'd be good for us just to remind ourselves about how powerful the, the power of God is. God, God's power is glorious. In Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites are escaping from Egypt and they are kind of hemmed in because the, the Egyptians are right behind them and then the Red Sea is right in front of them and God's power is so great and so glorious that He parts the waters, puts water on the right and water on the left and lets the Israelites walk through on dry ground and then as the, as the Egyptians follow them, he then collapses that water and destroys Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army. And in Exodus chapter 15, the Israelites say, Your power is glorious, O God. Now, I don't care what you say. That's a whole lot of power. His power is unrivaled. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, right before Moses dies, the Lord tells Moses that there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. 
His power is unrivaled. His power is unsearchable. Listen to what Job says. He does great things and unsearchable things, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. God's power is unsearchable. His power is mighty. Job says he is wise in heart and mighty in strength. He removes mountains. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He does great things beyond searching out, marvelous things beyond number. Church, we could walk through the scriptures and we would see that God's power is glorious and unsearchable and unrivaled and mighty and great and incomparable and everlasting and sovereign. And Paul tells us in Romans 1, that the gospel is the power of God. And we're inclined to think, but no, like it, we really see his power in the parting of the sea. We really see his power in him judging sinners or casting out Satan. Yeah, we do. We see the power of God. But Paul says, no, the real power, the most manifest power, the most powerful power of God is seen manifestly in the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus. And so we kind of want to walk through this text today and simply ask the question, how powerful is the gospel? So for y'all who take notes, you want to ask the question, how powerful is the gospel? And we're going to answer it. We're going to answer that question. First of all, it saves sinners. It saves sinners sinners. This word salvation in verse 16, in essence, it means deliverance. To be delivered, to be rescued, to be brought from one circumstance into another circumstance. That is to be brought from a bad circumstance to a good circumstance. And one of the things that we repeat over and over and over at Redeemer Church is that it is deliverance from and deliverance to. Can anybody maybe just give a description of what in salvation we're delivered from? Hell? That's right. We're delivered from hell? Wrath of God? What? Sin? Absolutely. Death? Yes, death, that's right. Eternal death, absolutely. The way I like to say it is we're, we're saved from the power of sin, we're saved from the penalty of sin, and we're saved from the pollution of sin. Like sin pollutes us. I mean, it just makes us just dirty and nasty, not only before God, but before one another. Sin also reigns over us and has a power that we just, we can't do anything but sin. Like whatever is not of faith is sin, the scripture tells us. It has complete power and sovereignty over us, and then, therefore, it penalizes. God penalizes us for that, and we, have, we experience hell forever if we're not changed. So salvation delivers us from all of that, the pollution, power, and penalty of sin. And what does it deliver us to, church? Yeah, heaven, that's right. The presence of God and the, the, the promise of, of Christ's righteousness, absolutely. What else does it deliver us to? Say it again. A new, a new life. Exactly. Like Carolyn, we no longer are under the dominion and power of sin. We're now under the dominion and power of God. And we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us and the power of His resurrection. We, we have a new power reigning in us. And we have a new purity. Like the gospel not only declares us righteous, but Ultimately, it makes us righteous, that we no longer have to live a polluted life. We no longer have to live a trashy life. We no longer have to live a dirty life. We can live a pure, holy, blameless life before God because the gospel rescues us. It delivers us to that. It saves sinners. I, some time ago, I was just reading the testimony of a couple, a married couple, who were unbelievers. They were um, on borderline atheists. And for whatever reason, practically speaking, they started reading the Bible. And this was the testimony that they made. If 
this is true, what we're reading in this book is true, then we're wrong. They kept reading it, and they said, if this is true, we're not only wrong, we're lost. But then they kept reading, and they said, if this is true, we are wrong and we are lost, but we can be saved. And they were. You know, the person who is writing this book, and therefore these two verses, is a guy who depended on his own righteousness, who was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and according to the law, everybody thought he was completely righteous. But in reality, he was just wearing fig leaves and considering them righteousness. And God, on the road to Damascus, that is, on the road in which he was going to persecute and likely kill Christians, just stuns Saul of Tarsus and unblinds his eyes and shows him the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and saves him right then and there. And so when Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, he's saying, I am the chief of sinners and I've been delivered. I've been delivered from the power and pollution and penalty of sin and I've been rescued over to the power of Christ, the purity of Christ and the promise of eternal life with Christ forever. I'm given a personal testimony. I have experienced this salvation. The gospel saves sinners like me. And Martin Luther would then give the same exact testimony when he read and was converted by this very passage. And church, I just want you to know that if you're saved, you have not saved yourself. Your good works have not contributed to your salvation. Your faithfulness to church has not contributed to your salvation. The gospel and the gospel alone is what has saved you. And if you're not a Christian and you're not trusting in Christ today, then do not trust in your works. Do not trust in your religiosity. Do not compare yourselves with others around you and say, well, I'm better than him or I'm better than her or I think I'm on a good path right now. I think I'll be fine without the gospel. I'm telling you, I'm even warning you today, do not trust in any of those things. Only trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It saves sinners. Second, it renews believers. It renews Believers, look down at verse 16. What is the very first word in verse 16? For, for. So whenever you use the word for or because, that means that you're building on something that you've already said, correct? So what verse do you think would be a good idea to look at next? 15 would be a great verse for us to look at. All right, so look at what he says to the church in Rome. He says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That verb, preach the gospel, is where we get our word evangelism. Euangelion, evangelism, evangelizing. Paul is saying, I can't wait to come to you guys because I want to evangelize you guys. I want to preach the gospel to you guys. And we're sitting here saying, wait a minute. I don't understand because look down at verse 8, y'all. He says, I'll thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your what? Faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, if you come from a kind of a fundamentalist or a traditional church background, this could be very confusing to you because you possibly grew up thinking that the gospel is the entryway 
into a life with God. It's the, it's the door in order to get into the house of God. But once you walk through the door, then you really don't have much use for the door anymore. You're going to go on into what the Christian life is really all about. And Paul is saying that the gospel is not only the power of God to save sinners, it is the power of God to renew believers, to refresh them, to transform them, to bless them, to encourage them, to bring them the power of God day after day after day after day. You never leave the gospel if you're a Christian. How does the gospel renew Believers, it, it humbles us before God and others. The more you remind yourself of the gospel, the more you realize that you were dead in your sins, you were depraved, you lived in darkness, there was a dungeon that you were underneath and a door that was collapsed in front of you that you could not get out of. The gospel reminds you of that. You remember who you were. But the gospel also reminds you that you've been brought out into the light. That dungeon door is closed. It is locked and sealed. You can't ever go back in there because the Lord has brought you out of it and then has not allowed for an entry ray to go back into it. And so now you have life. It is invigorating and fresh and beautiful life and you get to breathe the air of God's love for you in Christ through the gospel day after day after day. See, it humbles you before God, and it humbles you before others. It strengthens you for good works. We saw that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 last week. The gospel strengthens you. Like Some of us are naturally inclined to be arrogant and self-reliant, and others of us are inclined to be more um, discouraged, downtrodden, melancholy, and having little confidence. It doesn't matter whether we're over here or over here. What the gospel does is it, is it causes us to understand that our identity, our power, and our ability don't come from anything in ourselves but comes from the gospel itself. And so now we're no longer identified by our natural abilities. We're identified by God's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that nothing that comes up against us can stand if we've got the power of the gospel. That we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. That we can walk with great strength and with great confidence because of the gospel. The gospel motivates us to holiness. I, it does this for me. Like If I remember that God has rescued me out of the dungeon of darkness and sin, and pollution, and nastiness, and just straight-up depravity. If I remember that He's rescued me out of that, and He's brought me over to His beauty, His love, His mercy, His grace, and His holiness, as I'm remembering that, and then I'm tempted to try to unseal and unlock that dungeon to get back in there, it motivates me not to really want to go near that door. Why would I want to go back there? Why would I want to indulge in that stuff when I can walk out into the fresh air of the gospel of Jesus Christ and enjoy the goodness of God and the love of God and the mercy of God? You see, it, it helps us walk in holiness and it rescues us from idolatry. I think that's one of the things about the Protestant Reformation that I greatly appreciate is that so many people who were caught in the Roman system of, of church, the, the, the Roman Catholic Empire, as it were, was you could do certain acts. You could, you could do penance. You could um, pay for indulgences. You could celebrate um, communion. You could uh, get baptized. You could confess your sins to your priest. You could do a number of different things, and if you did those steps, then you were good with God. But the gospel rescues us from a list that we make and then keep so that we can be good with God. The, the gospel rescues from that, and it, and, it, and it helps us to just worship Him and love Him and enjoy Him. In other words, church, this is what I'm saying, is that even to this very day, 
people have a checklist with God. And if they check off these religious acts, especially as they involve the church, then they can go worship the God they really want to worship. College football, money, success, relationships, and everything else all under the sun. You see, if I go check the box, I can go worship my other God. The Protestant Reformation recaptures the heart of Romans 1, 16 and 17 so that we can say, no, we want to worship the God who has delivered us out of that idolatry and helps us worship God in spirit and in truth. And so this is what I want to say. Church, as Christians, we must never get over the gospel. We must never get beyond the gospel. We must never go further than the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, even deliverance from idolatry and strength for service and humility before God and others. It renews us. Third, it removes all barriers. It removes all barriers. It's the, it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And some are asking the question, why does it have to go to the Jew first? I mean, if it removes all barriers, like you're saying, then why, why the Jew first? Because God, in His sovereign, electing love, pursued Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make from you a great nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And God goes to the Israelites when they're in bondage in Egypt, as I said earlier, and, and He delivers them. And there are 12 tribes of Israel in which God strictly blesses. And then He says, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed beyond you. And like in the Psalms, it says, let all the nations be glad. But always, whether it was Jesus and His disciples who went to the Jews first, whether it was Paul, the apostle, always went to the Jews first, he went to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, but the playing field becomes level at the foot of the cross when the gospel enters in. Um, think about, for a moment, just think about people who are saved as we read about them in Scripture. I mean, think about Paul himself. He was a religious, legalist, self-righteous, successful, moral man. And the gospel cuts him down to size and shows him that salvation is not by his work, but by Christ's work. But on the very flip side, think about the Samaritan woman. She is an irreligious, immoral, adulterous, lonely woman. And the gospel brings her up to a place where she can have confidence and joy and love that she's never experienced before in her life. Think about Zacchaeus. He's a materialistic, greedy, deceitful, deceptive man. And the gospel flips the script on his life so that in a moment he gets to enjoy Jesus, love Jesus, and live for Jesus and the good of everybody around him from that point on when he interacts with him. And at the same time, think about the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5. He's violent, angry, uncontrollable. He's mad at Jesus. And Jesus speaks to him and rids him of those demons. And he becomes the very first missionary through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we could go on and on, church. But the gospel rescues people from all walks of life, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, whether you're Samaritan, whether you're lonely, whether you're high and haughty, it does not matter. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, the tomb is empty for everyone, and the throne room is available to all. You know, Paul was preaching to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill or great philosophers, so to speak, were on top of the hill. And, and he, he actually says this, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to do what? To repent. 
to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man that He's appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. What is He saying? Paul is saying that all people everywhere, it doesn't matter what gender you are, it doesn't matter what religion you're born in, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, it doesn't matter what your needs are, it doesn't matter how you feel, he is commanding everyone to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God into salvation. It removes all barriers. Now I just want to say a practical thing here. If you really believe that the gospel removes all barriers, that it shatters every religious, material, physical, economic barrier, then we dare not reserve preaching the gospel to people who look like us. We need to preach the gospel to everyone because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It removes all barriers, it shatters all fears. It shatters all fears. Notice at the first part of 16, he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. He's saying by that, I don't fear embarrassment. I don't fear humiliation. He's saying, I may be shamed, but I'm not ashamed. I may be embattled, but I'm not embarrassed. I may be persecuted, but I'm not humiliated. You see, I don't fear embarrassment. I don't fear humiliation that produces a reticence or, or, or kind of a coiling back from preaching the gospel. No, I don't fear any of those kinds of things because I know that the gospel is the only triumphant message in all the world. That's what he's saying. Like He would say all kinds of religions make converts, but the gospel actually saves people forever and brings them into joy with God. If we ask the question to Paul, hey, Paul, what is it about the gospel that makes you unashamed? I think that Paul would say it reveals the power of God and it reveals the righteousness of God. And I have on my person the power of God because I have the gospel. And I will go anywhere at any time to any people and preach that gospel because I know I have a message from the King of Kings. When I was in the 5th and 6th and 7th grades, um, I'm not necessarily proud of this, but I would try to find any way I could to get out of class and to walk the halls of Childersburg Middle School. And then when I would see someone who was an authority, I would kind of duck into the bathroom or behind a trash can or whatever. And I tried to stay out from class as much as I could. But I had no authority to be doing that. I just got a pass to go to the bathroom. But when I got to be in the eighth grade, for whatever reason, I have no idea, I was chosen to be an assistant to the vice principal. And that was for a whole period. And it was my job to take messages and papers all over the school from the vice principal. And so, Miss Watts would call me into the office and she would say, Ryan, I need you to take this down to Coach Dunkling's uh, room. I think they're in the gym today. And it was a two-level school. And I remember I would take that and I would walk up and down the halls and I would just dare teachers to ask me why I was out in the halls. You know, why? Because I'm on authority of the vice principal. You know, there's nothing. I was untouchable. Okay, Paul is saying, all fears have been shattered in my heart and in my life because I'm on authority of the King of kings. 
I can go anywhere to talk to anybody about the gospel of Jesus Christ because it has shattered my fear. It's the power of God to salvation. Paul had the courage of the psalmist who said, I will speak of your testimonies before kings and will not be ashamed. He had the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who looked at King Nebuchadnezzar and says, if we're thrown in the blazing furnace, the God of heaven and earth will save us. But even if He doesn't, we want you to know we will not serve your gods or bow down to the image of gold that you've set up. He had the courage of Paul and John who when exhorted not to preach in the name of Jesus, sorry, Peter and John, they said we cannot but preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they knew that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And they were not ashamed of it. It shatters fears. Now church, I believe with all my heart that God is calling you to have the same courage that the Apostle Paul had. I believe that you should be able to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It has shattered all my fears. And I stand with Paul. And I stand with the church. And I stand with Martin Luther and all those who have gone with me. And I say it's the power of God to salvation. And I will preach it on the rooftops until the Lord returns. The gospel shatters fears. All right, church, number five. It only requires faith alone and only receives faith alone. How powerful is the gospel? It saves sinners. It it renews and refreshes believers. It produces courage, it shatters fears, it shatters and kills all barriers. But the gospel only requires faith alone and only receives faith alone. Let's look back down at the text. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who does what? Believes. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Four times that word is used. The English translates the first one, believes, but it's the same word. Believes, faith, faith, faith. Okay, the first thing that I want to do here is I simply want to give you a basic definition of faith so that that doesn't get in any way obscured or overlooked. All right, Faith is trusting completely in the person, provision, and promises of God. It is is trusting completely in the person, provision, and promises of God. What do I mean by that? You have to first of all trust in the person of God. That He is the Creator. That He is holy that He is righteous, that He is big and good and wonderful, that He is sovereign and mighty, that He is who He is, that is the covenant God who keeps covenant for all generations. This is who He is. You recognize His identity, you recognize His attributes, and you completely trust in who He is. And then you trust, because of who He is, you trust in the provision for sinners that He has made. And what is the provision? What what provision did He make? Yes, His Son. He made the provision of His Son. He provided His Son to live perfectly, to die sacrificially on our part. And let's just don't forget, church, that when He was on the cross, He was receiving the awful brutality of men. Let's don't forget that, but let's also don't forget that God was pouring out, as it were. He was dumping out His righteous, vengeful, 
holy wrath against all of sin from eternity to eternity on His Son Jesus. It's called propitiation. You see, Jesus' death was a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. So, so when we say you're trusting not only the person of God, but the provision of God, that provision is seen squarely in what Jesus has done for us on the cross and then the promises of God. What is the promise of God? Paul says it to the Philippian jailer. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be what? So you'll be saved. You can experience salvation and joy. You can walk out of the dungeon of darkness and sin and death and hell and you can walk into the light of God's love and mercy and grace and breathe the fresh air of the gospel if you simply will believe on the Lord Jesus. And so, so it's not being a Christian is not complex. It is not, it is not like an equation. It's, like, it's not something that you can't figure out. You simply have to believe in who God is, you have to believe in what God has done, and you have to believe in what God has said that you need to do, and that is simply believe in Him. It is not complex. Now, it does require your whole life. And that's the idea of faith. Now, let's just look at the text, and I want to explain a few things for you. First of all, he says, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God. Now, righteousness is that which conforms to God's holy character and perfect law. Okay? Righteousness is that which conforms to His holy character and His perfect law. Now, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, this is what I first want you to know. That, that the righteousness of God, this phrase here, it has a meaning. We can't just read it and, and just keep going and say, well, I don't know what that means, and let's just keep going. Listen, the way Martin Luther read the righteousness of God, I think that phrase is used 20 times in the book of Romans, and Martin Luther was a Bible studier. And until the Lord opened the eyes of Martin Luther's heart for him to see the glory of God in Christ, Martin Luther read the righteousness of God, and every time he read it, this is what he read, God's retributive justice on sinners. God's vengeance on sinners. God's pouring out wrath on sinners because God is righteous and sinners are unrighteous. And so when he would read Romans 1, 16 and 17, he would say, for in it, for in the gospel, the retributive justice and judgment of Almighty God is revealed. That is not at all what Paul means. The righteousness of God means the righteousness from God. The, the gracious imputation of righteousness on sinners is what he means. You know, when, when Luther discovered this truth, that, that, is, that is, it is not God's vengeance towards sinners, but rather God's love towards sinners. Like God's, the righteousness that comes from God and is imputed on sinners who believe in Him. When he found that, when he saw that for the very first time, he called it the happiest day of his life. The happiest day of his life. And listen to what he said. He says, God does not want to save us by our own righteousness. Let's stop right now. Just say, church, God has no interest in saving us through our own righteousness. Now, I'll say this. Luther was not saying this, but I'll say it. He has no interest in saving us through our own righteousness because it would belittle and make null and void the righteous work of what His Son accomplished for us 2,000 years ago. Now, God doesn't want to save us by our own righteousness, Luther says, but by an extraneous righteousness, one that does not originate in ourselves but comes to us from beyond ourselves. It doesn't arise on earth, but comes from heaven. And so Luther, like us who have tasted salvation through the gospel, was delivered from the dark dungeon of salvation by works and brought into the fresh air of salvation by grace through faith alone. Now keep looking down at the text because he says, the righteousness from God 
That is, the, the righteousness that is sourced in God and that God gives to us as a gift through His Son Jesus is revealed from faith for faith. The ESV is an awesome translation and that's why we use it, but I do not know what from faith for faith means. Okay? What this... What, what, what Paul is indicating is that, is that by faith from beginning to end, from first to last, from start line to finish line, salvation is through faith and faith alone. That's what he's saying. From faith to faith, maybe. So the righteous, he then says, shall live by faith. Can you notice that that statement is in quotation marks? What does that generally mean when, a, when a, uh, a phrase is in quotation marks in the New Testament? What does that normally mean? Yes, it's quoting something else. That's interesting, D.C., because sometimes it might not be quoting an Old Testament passage, but the majority of the time it is. That's right. Okay, and so he's quoting the Old Testament. And you know what I, what I think is awesome is that Paul doesn't, reach back to Genesis chapter 4 where Abel offered a better sacrifice to God than Abel did because he believed God. And he doesn't reach back to Genesis 12 or Genesis 15 or Genesis 18 where Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. He doesn't even reach back to the Psalms who says, I will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And he doesn't reach back to the Proverbs where it simply says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Instead, he goes to Habakkuk. He goes to Habakkuk to talk about how God has always been one who has stated that righteous people will not live on their own righteousness, but faith in the one who is righteous. You see, Habakkuk lived and conducted his prophetic ministry around 600 B.C. And if memory serves me right, it was Jehoiakim who was the king during this time. And Jehoiakim was evil. He was wicked. He was violent. He abused the Jewish people. He exploited those who were needy. He did whatever he wanted to do, whenever he wanted to do it, and he didn't care who he had to, to trample on in order to get what he wanted. And Habakkuk, the prophet of God, asked God, how can you let this happen, God? I'm just, I'm just asking, how, how can you just let wickedness reign among your people? And God basically answers back and He says, I'm not going to let wickedness reign. I'm actually going to bring the Chaldeans in and He's going to destroy Jehoiakim and the people who are exploiting my people. And then Habakkuk's like, wait a minute. The Chaldeans are worse sinners than we are. You're going to let that happen? That's not even right. And God responds to Habakkuk. And He basically says... Trust me, I know what I'm doing. The righteous shall live by faith. That is, the righteous shall trust me even when they don't understand me. The righteous will rely on me even when they can't see with their eyes exactly what I'm doing. The righteous shall always live by faith from beginning to end. You see, the righteous don't live by faith when it's easy to see the hand of God. The righteous live by faith from day to day and month to month and year to year and decade to decade until their life is over. It is by faith from the start line to the finish line because faith magnifies the power of God. That's what he's saying. And so... The gospel only requires faith alone and only receives faith alone. And I just want to say, because of the emphasis on faith, 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 faith in this passage, and then all the way through the book of Romans, it is all about faith in the provision of God through Jesus Christ. Church, hear your pastor say, don't dare add anything to this gospel. Don't say, don't say, well, I believed in the gospel and I went to church on most Sundays. Or I believed in the gospel and I served in nursery 
a lot. Or I believed in the gospel and I was pretty patient with my spouse. Or I believed in the gospel and I did X or Y or Z. This is what I want you to know, church. This is so important. If you add anything to the gospel for your resume before God, you now have nullified the work of God and the power of God in the gospel. And I'm afraid that you will not be entered into the kingdom of God. Because if you add anything to it, then you're subtracting from the perfect person and work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Don't add one shred of your work to the gospel before God. Trust Him, believe in Him, wholeheartedly rely on His person, His promises, and His provision in Jesus. Okay, I want to ask you if you will, Bow your head in the spirit of prayer. There are maybe maybe three kinds of of people in the room right now as it pertains to the gospel and saving faith. And I'm not saying that any of you are are this person, but you might be inclined in this way. And I just want you to ask yourself this question. Number one, am I a person who believes that belief only encompasses knowledge? Like just the intellect, that I, I know the gospel. And because I know the gospel, I'm good. Like I know the gospel and I give mental and intellectual assent that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died a sinner's death, that He was raised from the dead, He ascended into heaven. If that's you, if if you're just the person who gives a mental assent to the facts of the gospel, but it has not changed your life and you're not wholly and fully committed to it, I want to give you the opportunity to repent. Because I want you to know that faith, that is saving faith, means not only knowing the gospel, but embracing the gospel and committing your life to the gospel. It involves your mind, your emotions, and your will. You can't merely know it, you must embrace it. You must embrace it in a way that you give your whole life to it. There is nothing greater than the gospel. There's nothing more important than the gospel. And there's nothing more powerful than the gospel. So right now, if you're in this position where you need to repent from treating the gospel lightly and only giving intellectual assent to it, repent right now. And ask God to give you a full, all-in-all faith in the God of the Gospel. Second, you may be the kind of person who believes the Gospel, but you just can't help yourself from judging your spirituality and your standing with God based on your works. Monday, you're going to wake up feeling saved because Sunday was awesome. You're going to make a mistake, and Tuesday, you're going to wake up and you're going to feel like you're in the dungeon again. And you might even need to get saved again. Wednesday, you wake up and you're crawling yourself, maybe banging on the door of the dungeon, and you're like, God, I want out of this dungeon. And you don't hear God calling, and so you try to find a way to pick the locks. You may believe the gospel, but the way that you live your life is you're relying on yourself. And you find yourself failing and succeeding and failing and seeing. And you kind of just go in and out of resting in the provision of God. And I just want to call you to repent. God didn't call you to be schizophrenic. God hasn't called you to be a bipolar Christian. God has called you to rest in His power, which is the gospel, which says you are accepted and received by faith 
and faith alone. Repent and rest in Him today. And then third, you may be a Christian who doesn't count on your works. You may be a a Christian who does more than give mental assent. But you also may be a Christian who does not preach the gospel consistently to people who need to be saved. I want to ask you, where do you really stand with God? If you say you possess the power of God unto salvation to anyone who will believe it, and you never share it with anybody... That sounds like somebody who doesn't believe the gospel. That sounds like somebody who gives mental assent, but whose life is not transformed yet. And if you believe the gospel and you believe that it is God's provision, it's His promise, it's who He is, man, I want to right now call you to repent from not preaching this gospel to people who need it. I call you to repent from being ashamed, from being humiliated, being embarrassed, for having a greater fear of of man than you have a confidence in the God of the gospel. Repent. Turn from your unbelief and preach this powerful gospel that is so powerful that it saves sinners, that it renews believers, that it breaks down all barriers and it shatters all fears because it is by faith and faith alone. 